Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Ken Wright of Ken Wright Cellars in Oregon. He's both the founder and the winemaker there. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. It's very nice to see you. So in the late 70s, you were working in wine in California. I did. I started in 78 in Monterey County, working for a company called Ventana. Additionally, at the Ventana facility, I was making wines for Shalom. Dick Graff would have been around? Absolutely. Uh, Dick Graff was around. And the Shalom wines at the time, it would be easy to say that they may have been the best wine being made in the United States. They were phenomenal wines. Uh, Dick was greatly a part of that. He had an unbelievable passion for winemaking, for excellence, for quality, and he conveyed that to everyone he was around. But I was so fortunate because he formed, at the time I was there, a research group that met at Mount Eden in the Santa Cruz Mountains. It's a research group that included Stephen Kessler from Sonoma, Rick Foreman from Napa, Josh Jensen and Steve Dorner from Calera, Larry Brooks from Acacia, Rich Sanford from Santa Barbara. It was an amazing group of people, including all the Shalom properties. And I got to be part of it because I was making these wines for them, the Gavlin wine. I had a chance to sit in, and it was pretty heady stuff, experimenting both in the vineyard and the winery. So I was wise enough at the time to keep my mouth shut and my ears open. One of the things Dick Graff really wanted to focus in on early was French barrels for white wine, right? Absolutely. And at the time, the sources for French oak were quite limited. You really had only three producers in the United States. You had Francois Frere. Sirug and uh, Terenceau. That was it. And so we experimented, yes, with using French oak, with barrel fermentation, aging with lees, aging with the original yeast, not racking, using different yeast strains, or simply letting things go native. There was a lot of work with that, but his use of French oak was significant. And uh, We got down to the point of looking at very specific forests. I found that when you're looking at barrels and purchasing barrels, the variety dictates where you would choose the source. 
So for wines of finesse and detail, like Pinot Noir, like Chardonnay, my personal feeling is that those forests that were most northern, the sweetest forests, those that have the most sugars, which are the very complex sugars called hemicelluloses, the ones that have the most sugar and the least resin, the least resin are those that really present the wine in the best possible way. They lift and support the wine instead of conquering the wine. One of the things that you share with Dick Graff is a concern for soil type. He spent a lot of time searching out limestone in California, right? Which is kind of a hard thing to find there, actually. Yeah, it is. Yeah, very hard to find, absolutely. I think Josh Jensen was on that same quest. You know, in limestone, clearly it can work very well for Pinot Noir. I don't think it, it's critical, but it works well. Those are sites that tend to be very basic instead of acidic. They're very basic sites. So it's a different kind of farming as a result. You're actually acidifying soil instead of adding lime like we may do here in Oregon. In Oregon, the soils are acidic, whereas in Burgundy and with limestone and where Shalone is, they were basic. Correct. Exactly. Our area is mostly, uh, there are essentially three types of soil series that we work with. The underlayment of everything that we have here is marine sediments. And they were created by plate activity. So the Willamette Valley being very westerly in the state of Oregon, we're only 40 miles from the coast. The western half of Oregon didn't exist 200 million years ago. None of Washington state existed. So what has been happening over that period of time is you've had our nearby maritime plate, the Juan de Fuca plate, has been plunging underneath our coastline. And as it does so, the soft sediments that are on the top of that plate, as the hard rock goes underneath, subducts and goes down underneath the crust, that soft material gets sheared off by rubbing against our coastline. And those scrapings accumulate. And over time, we just keep making more and more and more landmass. So in the last 200 million years, we have created half of Oregon and all of Washington State. We're still making land every moment of every day. It's not much every day. We're not going to live to see a new coastline, but that's how the base material got here, the marine sediments. And then 15 million years ago, there was a set of mountains in the northeastern part of the state near Idaho called the Blue Mountains that at that time were incredibly violent. And they issued so much lava that the material flowing west, because it was lower in elevation, all that lava flowed west. It filled in a massive basin in the, where the middle of the state is now, filled that in about a half mile deep of cooled lava. And then once it filled that basin in, it just kept coming west. There were no cascades at the time. They didn't exist yet. So Mount Hood wasn't here, St. Helens, Rainier, they weren't here yet. And so it was all downhill. And so that material kept going, and it covered the Willamette Valley, the northern part of it, with a veneer of basalt over those marine sediments that were here first. And so that provided that volcanic layer that is still evident in some places here in the valley. The third that you would see would be 
what you would call LUS, a wind-deposited soil type. And there's an area called Laurelwood on the north side of the Chehalem Mountains that is an example of that. And that's, those three are pretty much uh, sum up the three types of soil and parent material series that you'll see. And it's always important not to just say soil. Soil is, for me, it, it's so irrelevant in the end to detail in the wines. It's important for water. It's important for nitrogen. But in every case, in every site that we've ever developed, real character doesn't begin to show in the wines from any site until the root system is past the soil and it's beginning to engage the mother rock, whatever that is. Now, it might be the marine sediments that were here first, which are now, they're really old, you know, they're 50 million years old or so, and they're compressed, and so we would call them sandstone or siltstone. And they're not far down, depending upon where you are. It may be only three, four, five feet. Um, then the volcanics, so areas like Dundee, the Dundee Hills, the Eola Amity Hills, parts of the Chehalem Mountains, McMinnville, these areas still have vestiges of that flood that have not eroded yet. Around them, they've all eroded, mostly, mostly, re-exposing the old marine sediments, which are much older. We care about it, we talk about it, because the mother rock, not soil, the mother rock plays the largest role in determining the profile of the wine. And how does that express for you? There are some generally accepted descriptions, I think, in the industry these days, but there is no right or wrong. Your perception is your perception, and you should hang on to that. Everybody should believe in their own ability to taste and smell. However, I think it would be fair to say that when you plant Pinot Noir in the volcanics, that the wines will tend to be more fruit-driven. They can be red in their profile, and I think that's pretty typical of Dundee. You see a lot of strawberry and raspberry and cherry. In Eola, that profile's darker. You see a lot of blueberry, blackberry, cassis, plum. Still fruit-driven, but darker. Uh, McMinnville, also darker, even to blue and black. In my mind, it's correct to say that there is a theme of Pinot Noir and volcanic areas being fruit-driven. When you plant Pinot Noir in the marine sediments, I think it's a completely different animal. It becomes, in my mind, very savory. We see, you know, leather, cedar, tobacco, anise, clove, root beer, all of these qualities that are not really fruit-driven. It isn't to say that one's better than another. What we're enjoying in our business is this highlighting of the ability of, of the plant to connect us to these very particular qualities, how amazing it is. Do you see textural or structural differences as you well? You do. Yeah, you definitely do. For whatever reason, at the point that you, you know, if you and I were to go out together and we were tasting fruit as we were hitting ripeness, you believe me, it's, it doesn't take, it's not rocket science. I mean, it's definitely not laboratory numbers. You know when something's ripe. The human palate is insanely amazing. And especially if you were there with me for, say, like three weeks prior or a month prior, and you saw that gradation of going from green 
eventually to sweet, but without depth, and then to real depth, you would know. Anyone knows if you're doing the legwork. And the point at which that happens, where you go, oh my God, this is, okay, call the crew, it's time. The point at which that happens for marine sediments, we have less acidity. The volcanics have more acidity. And so the wines, in a general way, generally speaking, generally you could say that the volcanics tend to have a little more acidity. In the case of Eola, it also comes with a bit more structure in terms of tannin. And McMenville, both of them, they tend to have more tannin. And I think that's a result also of the influence of the Van Duzer Quarter, which is another subject. But uh, you can say generally that there's more acidity in the volcanic wines, whereas the sedimentary sites, because there's less acidity naturally at the time that you reach perfect ripeness, they tend to be, in the beginning of, of the wine's life, they do tend to be a little less acidic, a little more luxurious on the palate, if you will, a little more broad on the palate. You know, the volcanic wines absolutely get there, but maybe with a little more time, needing a little more time in the cellar. Do you see differences aromatically? Yes. Again, yeah. Again, spicy, floral, savory on the sedimentary side and way more fruit-driven on the volcanic side. Do they behave differently as fermentations? Sometimes, yes. High levels of acidity can be inhibiting to yeast a little bit. They can inhibit the performance of yeast. So the sedimentary sites having a little less acid will tend to ferment at a quicker rate than their partners in the volcanic areas. What about Luss? Are there vineyards on Luss that are separated out that you can kind of see? I know it's not as dominant of a soil type. I don't have any vineyards on Les. So for me, that's a, it, honestly, it's an unknown. I've enjoyed wines from the, that area, from the Laurelwood area, the Ponzi's being an obvious one. So you came up in 86, right? Exactly. And your friend Alan Holstein was up here already? So Alan and I had actually, we graduated from high school together in Louisville, Kentucky. We're the first graduating class of Ballard High School in Louisville, Kentucky. And we were additionally roommates in college off campus and when he was doing his master's in horticulture. He went to Oregon from Lexington, and I went to California. And so over the eight years, we visit each other fairly often. And over those eight years, I had at least a half dozen experiences drinking Pinot either from bottle or from barrel, that absolutely convinced me this is where I needed to be. You had been in Davis, and so I imagine you learned some technical things. How did they apply when you came up to Oregon? Did you find ready application for that background, or did you have to kind of relearn? Dick Graff, I think, impressed upon me in those early years that Pinot Noir is such a singularly sensitive grape. In the vineyard, it's thin-skinned, disease-prone. It cannot be cropped heavily. It has a lot of constraints built in if you want to be successful, and you have to be so careful with it. In the cellar, it's equally difficult because Pinot Noir does not have inherently 10 of the 15 anthocyanins common to red grapes. It's kind of a halfway grape. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of halfway between white and, white and red. Because it doesn't have 
10 of the 15 tannin compounds, it's more susceptible to damage. Because tannin is a bit of a life preserver for red wines. An accidental exposure in the cellar to air, for Cabernet, not a big deal. For Syrah, not a big deal. For Pinot, it's a big deal. Because it doesn't have that free tannin that would absorb that exposure. Instead, what's combining with that air, that oxygen that it's exposed to, are flavor compounds, aromatics. You're losing things when that happens. There is no buffer like other red varieties have. You're screwed. When you were trying Pinot from the 70s and the early 80s, and you're making that decision, you know what, I think Oregon's for me. What were you seeing about Oregon in those wines that said, let's get up there? That's a great question. Is it, to me, what really blew me away about Oregon Pinot Noir was that it hit the nail on an absolute fresh fruit profile. It's perfectly ripe on the vine. When it's hit right, it's so amazing to have fruit like that. Perfectly dead on for that ripe fruit profile. Not dried fruit, not green fruit that needs a little time. It was spot on. You in Oregon have been instrumental along with other people in sort of defining the AVAs of Oregon. But I I imagine when you got here in the 80s, that was all nascent or non-existent. No, you're right. When I was in California and aware of Oregon big time, the um, public discussion about Oregon essentially centered on the fact that in a great vintage, Oregon was amazing, and in a challenging vintage, it was not. And I think that's a fair, that's a fair description. Three years prior to my coming up to Oregon, in 83, Dave Adelsheim wrote the Willamette Valley Viticultural Area, or AVA, American Viticultural Area. He wrote that. And that was, even though it included everything, it included bottomland and, and everything from Portland to Eugene, but it was a great thing he, that he did because it gave us a physical location to talk to people about. I mean, half the people didn't know that Oregon was actually on the Pacific Ocean. It was somewhere near Minnesota or Montana. There was a lot of, of explanation to do back in the day, you know, about this unknown area. And so for Dave to be able to write that, to give us a place to, we, with maps that we could say, here we are, here's the ocean, these are the reasons, these are the influences that make this such a special spot for Pinot Noir, was awesome. But as Dave would tell you, today, being that inclusive meant that he had a lot of land that was unsuitable, you know, for world-class Pinot Noir. And no one knows that more than Dave. And so over time, as people had more experience with making wine from these different regions in this area, it became clear that there were some incredibly special locations that are within essentially a 25-mile radius of where you and I sit right now in McMinnville, Oregon. These six new sub-Appalachians, and that would be Yamhill, Carlton, Eola Amity Hills, Ribbon Ridge, Shehala Mountains, Dundee, of course, and McMinnville. From 95 to 2000, there was an explosion of single-site Pinot Noir produced by everybody in the valley. And 
the great opportunity that gave us, both the industry and the public, was to be able to do tastings of all of these site-specific wines. What happened is we began to develop a vocabulary. We saw that the volcanics tend to be more fruit-driven, and we saw that the marine sediments tend to be more savory. And it gave a lot of those who weren't sure that there were differences, surety that there were. Clear differences. What's the proportion in terms of land surface of those six sub-AVAs versus the Willamette Valley as a whole AVA? It's less than 5%. It's less than 5% of the entire Willamette Valley AVA. Now, I should, I should say, it doesn't mean that there aren't other areas that are going to be amazing. There are other areas. I mean, we work with a vineyard, Freedom Hill, in the Coast Range, which is currently creating its own viticultural area. And over time, there'll be more. Freedom Hill is a vineyard you started working with pretty early when you were at Panther Creek in the 80s, right? Yeah, 1987. Uh, Dan and Helen sat in my crummy little office with me when I was here in McMinnville in my $250 a month building. <laughs> yeah. And we made a deal that day, and we've, you know, here we are 30 years later, and uh, we're still making wine from Freedom Hill. It's been through a lot of changes. It was destroyed by phylloxera in the 90s had to be replanted, but that really sad economic development ended up being the impetus to create a new trellis system on that vineyard that changed everything. It changed everything. The quality of the wine completely changed with the new system that was installed when we did the replanting. How did you determine in the 80s the sites you wanted to work with? When I first came up, I didn't have a clue about where the best areas might be. And so we did not buy a property at the time. We only had a winery. Well, we had limited funds anyway. We started the winery and began sourcing from different parts of the valley, be it Eola, be it McMinnville, be it Dundee, and so forth. We started trying fruit from a number of different sources to try to get a sense of what were the qualities of these different areas and were they consistent? And over, it took us 12 years, 12 years of trying a number of different sites before we had the confidence really to begin buying land, which is what we then began doing in 1998. In 87, we began working with two vineyards that we have had in our quiver since that year, since 87 for 30 years, and that was Freedom Hill and Canary Hill. To have Pinot already in the ground in the 80s is kind of early in the history of Oregon, right? Yes. So the first plantings, you know, so Dave Lett and Charles Query, they came up in 65, but they didn't plant their vineyards until 66. And we were so lucky that David brought the Vadensville clone. What a wonderful thing that that happened. And he, because no one knew exactly what would perform well here, and there are a lot of different clones of Pinot Noir, and not all of them work. But David brought up Vadensville, and it quickly proved that it belonged here. What are the attributes of Vadensville? What I love about Vadensville is that it has delicacy, transparency, and it's full of high notes. It's the soprano. It's not dark in color. It's not tannic. There's not a lot of structure. But oh my God, it's so detailed and so pretty, all these beautiful high notes. And so we got lucky two years later when Dick Erath 
in 68 brought Pomard. Pomard ended up being, I think, the perfect partner for Vadensville because it was the basso. It was dark. It was structured. It was tougher, rougher. It had uh, all those bass notes that complemented the Vadensville. In the end, what you were able to achieve is this stretching of the aromatic profile from high to low notes and complexity as a result. And that was just lucky. It was lucky. I mean, they were thoughtful people who put a lot of thought into what they brought, but still, you don't know. You don't know until you plant. Those two clones really served as the foundation for the industry and had a, we had a lot of success. You know, Dave Letts wines from the mid-70s that did so well in Paris. All those wines were driven by those two clones. It wasn't until the, the mid to late 80s that we started to see the um, availability and inclusion of the Dijon clones. When you were working with Freedom Hill and with Canary Hill, what did they have in the ground in terms of clones? It was all Pomard and Vainsville. Everything. The reason I ask is because during your Panther Creek era, which is about a decade, right? Mm-hmm. I associate those wines as a little bigger and darker. Yes. From you. Yes. And then now I associate them more with some of those finer high notes across vineyards. Yes. So I was just wondering if that's one correct and then... Well, one thing for sure, if you took Freedom Hill as an example, so when I mentioned that trellis change, so back in the day when it was first planted, it was on what you would call a California sprawl or a hanging trellis, that's the same thing, where you have one wire, pretty much a chest level. So you're training a trunk that high, and then you have the arms going out onto that wire. There's no catch wire system, there's no nothing. And so what happens as the shoots grow, initially they grow vertically, but once they gain weight, they flop or sprawl, and they fall to the vineyard floor. And what happens then is you have the fruit, which is in the first couple of positions on each shoot. The fruit is sitting up proud on that wire, fully exposed to the sun, all day, all day. That exposure causes the skin tissue of those berries to thicken significantly. If you and I were out tasting and we were going from vineyard to vineyard back in the day, we go to Freedom Hill and you'd pop a berry from Freedom Hill in your mouth, and you would look at me like, holy cow, that's like leather. And it was. All of that skin tissue reflected in the winery as additional tannin. And the more tannin you have, the more fixed, in chemistry they call it something that's stable is fixed. So the more fixed your color would be. Darker. And so some of that fruit from those early years came from that system But along with that, you had high tannin levels, a lot of structure. In fact, there was a a writer in New York, Jay McInerney, and Jay Jay wrote an article, I think it was in the New Yorker, about Pinot Noir from Oregon. And he mentioned in that article about Freedom Hill Pinot Noir, and he said he called it the Cabernet of Pinot, which is not necessarily a positive thing to read, you know. But he was right. He was totally right. It was just excessively tannic. It was brutal, almost. You know, everything we could do, we we did to try and solve the tannins. But in the end, what really solved it was that trellis change. Even with the sad departure of these 
older vines gave us that opportunity to retrellis it. So you'd be correct to say, having tried those vines in the past, in those early days, way darker, way more structured on several vineyards. I think sometimes the road direction is different in, in Oregon than California. Like east-west would be like a California thing and north-south would be like an Oregon thing. I think in California there's less concern about it. There's so much heat accumulated over the course of a season, it's less of an issue perhaps. But in Oregon, it is an issue. If you have east-west vines in their orientation, so you have a south side to the trellis and a north side to the trellis, the north side gets less exposure to sun. It's a really noticeable difference in the development of the fruit. In the color of the fruit, it's a really noticeable difference. And so I think in Oregon, we have exactly the right amount of heat to ripen Pinot Noir correctly in most years. But if we were to create different conditions in the vineyard, it's a problem. You want your orientation to be north-south so that you get the sun's travel on both sides of that trellis over the course of a day, and you're getting pretty much equal exposure for both sides is important. Pinot Noir is the earliest ripening red variety. Anywhere in the world, you plant it next to Syrah and Cab and Merlot and Grenache, whatever, Pinot Noir wins every time it gets to the tape first, which is why it struggles in hot climates, because it races. It races so quickly to high sugar levels that it forces your hand to harvest. You have to harvest because sugars are getting out of control. It creates a very short season, and the wine that results from that high-sugared fruit, which lacks complexity, is that you have a brutal smash-mouth Pinot Noir that has high alcohol and no detail. That's not what Pinot Noir is about. So it's, it's so important that you know, Pinot Noir has to be planted in those areas that are marginal. And we, are, we have that gift. And we have all been, over these decades, learning how to farm correctly and then how to protect in the winery correctly. In the late 90s, you started purchasing property and you started arranging for long-term leases. And you have a number of properties that you manage the farming now. Yes. And so, as we've alluded to, it seems to me that with passing years, you've developed more kind of finer notes aromatically in a number of your wines. And are there things you did to the farming to do that? More than anything else, I think we're benefiting from age of vine. When you look at creating a vineyard, we look at all of these variations on the theme. You know, how many vines per acre, what clones, what rootstocks, what kind of trellis, and there are all of these variables. But in the end, I think what matters more than all of that is vine age. Some of our best wines we've ever been associated with came from old school, widely planted vineyards, but they were deeply, deeply rooted, way into that mother rock. Again, that's why it's so sad when you have to start over, because you treasure those older vines. I think I'm benefiting from having done this for 40 years. We've learned a few things. And every year, you will see, if you're in this industry, you're going to see something you haven't seen before. But with, with experience, your reaction is a better reaction. I think you react more sensitively and smartly. So I'm glad that you feel like the wines are, are more detailed and nuanced 
And I think that, you know, it has something to do with our approach in the winery, perhaps as well. But more than anything, I think we're beginning to, the whole industry is really beginning to benefit from working with older vines that are deeply, deeply rooted in Mother Rock and uptaking all those trace elements that provide detail. You know, those trace elements are phosphorus, manganese, iron, copper, zinc, calcium, sodium, so many different things. And it's that uptake that creates that detail and that personality for each site. So what do you find is key when you're going to be farming acidic soils? One of the most important things is to recognize you have acidic soils. And when I mentioned that uptake of those trace elements, the vine itself is not making that happen. Um, No plant does. All plants rely on microbiology. They all rely on the populations of microbiology in that site to break down that raw ore and deliver it in an ionic form to the plant. And so part of that farming, your farming approach, a fair bit of that has to be dedicated to supporting that microbiological population. Those microbes that help us are aerobic. They're oxygen-loving. And so you want to tip the scales for them compared to the other side of that world of microbiology, which is harmful to us, which is anaerobic, doesn't use oxygen. So you want to encourage that population. That's a key. What have you been doing to do that? It's important to recognize that you are driving tractors year-round on the soil, the soil which is soft and essentially sponge-like, if you will, in that over numbers of trips through that vineyard, you're beginning to compress that soil big time. And what you're compressing out of the soil is oxygen. And you have to recognize you're doing that. I mean, it's part of the farming process is that you're doing that. You can repair that. You can repair that loss of oxygen by coming through, and I like to do it with ripping. Not rototilling, where you're destroying soil structure, but actually gashing. You're gashing the earth two and a half feet, three feet deep alongside your plants, creating this two-inch to three-inch gash that goes down deeply along the plant. And what happens is it brings in oxygen into that profile. We do that every, every few years in order to replenish the oxygen that we're essentially pressing out through the tractor travel. You compared soil to a sponge. And if you push down on the sponge, what you're pushing out is air. That's right. That has to be repaired or you end up with a lack of oxygen, which is favorable to the wrong side of microbiology. Because that wrong side of microbiology does not break down the raw ore. It does not deliver it to the plant. And so what can happen to you, and it's noticeable in the winery, you begin to lose volume of aroma, volume of flavor. Because the plant is not upticking those trace elements that provide that detail. It's noticeable. You rip and you kind of take a knife through the soil. Yes. And you do alternate rows every few years. Yes. Exactly right. You make a range of sites. There's Freedom Hill, there's Canary Hill, there's Guadalupe, there's Carter, Shea you work with. So if I were to understand some of these key sites, what should I understand about them and how they're different? To me, you don't know what you're doing 
unless you do the testing of that site in detail to know what what are the issues. Because for me, in the end, it's about nutrition. And nutrition is really very complex. And it's lack of correct nutrition isn't solved necessarily by a specific approach. To me, the critical thing is to test your site, to look at what are the levels, in, and this is what we do. We're testing the leaf blade to find out, okay, what is our nutritional status? So that goes into a laboratory. We get this amazing array of results that tell us exactly how much manganese is in the plant, potassium and and zinc and sodium and so on and so forth, all of that. Then we have a test that we'll do in the soil for the exact same things, looking at the nutritional status of the soil. And it's not uncommon for them to not match up, where there may be, in fact, an amazing amount of potassium in the soil, but it's not making its way to the plant. You need to know that because in the, in the end, the uptake of those trace elements isn't just about detail in aroma and flavor, which it is. It's also about health. It's about just general health, just like taking vitamins. If that plant is getting all of these trace elements, it really provides strength to the plant. You know, like calcium provides strength to the cell wall. Let's say we get to the end of the year and you have a rain system come in and you're getting battered a bit by a system at year's end. Now, if you don't have good set calcium, that cell wall, the integrity of that berry will be less. So you may, you know, you may lose that fight. You may end up with a lot of disease, a lot of degradation of the fruit tissue. Basic health really does allow you through the course of the year to push through disease pressure. It's amazing to watch a vineyard that has great health. It's amazing to watch how it performs versus someone next door who doesn't have, and to see how the outcome of a challenging event, it's pretty amazing. So that's equally as as important, that basic health. And then we also look, we'll do deep core samples. So you have the nutrition of the plant, nutrition of the soil, and then we'll do deep core samples for microbiology to see who's there. And you get, again, you get an assay and it tells you, okay, here's the aerobic side of the world, oxygen-loving, here's the anaerobic side of that world, and who's there? And so that information, that becomes then the information that we're using to develop a farming plan. If we notice that we're super low in potassium, we're going to try to find a way to solve that. If we notice that we're way overly excessive in manganese, we're going to try to find a way to solve that. We try to, to create health. And it's not about trying to make every place the same, You never will because the mother rock is never the same from place to place. It's just about making sure the plant can take up what's there, that it's not inhibited. Now, as we mentioned earlier, being in an acidic region like we are, and both are volcanic and our marine sediment areas are very acid. On the pH scale, you know, 0 to 14, they're about 5.2. On the acid side, a 7, significantly. And in the world, in any kind of ag, the further you get away from neutral, seven, either basic going up that scale or acidic going down that scale, the further you get away from neutral, the more your microbiology struggles. It doesn't operate well in severe conditions. 
So in our area, the natural remedy for that is lime. And thank God it's cheap. Thank God. I mean, because it's, just, it's important. It's terribly important to use lime at regular intervals over the years to keep your pH higher than our natural pHs, which are 5.2. Because at 5.2, they do struggle. You can see it in all of your testing. It's clear. And then once you've moved it, you don't have to move it. It, it isn't about moving it to seven or making it perfect. It's not like that. It's just moving it enough that the plant begins uptaking those things it couldn't because the microbiology activity is increased. That's what it's all about. We move gradually. We're moving that pH. Maybe we'll move it up to six. And we will see with our further testing, all of a sudden you're going to start to see a different uptake. And all of a sudden, wow, now we're getting all this zinc. Awesome. Now we're getting calcium. Now we're getting... It's amazing how the breadth of what you're uptaking is increased. And now the eyeball test, if you just look at the vineyard, just physically looking at it, it's incredible to see that the color of the tissue, just the health of that site, it's plainly obvious. It's really... And it's not, we're not talking about overstimulating. We're not trying to get large tonnages. We're not trying to, to do anything. We're not trying to overstimulate the plant. We're just trying to make it balanced. So do you see a different cluster on a balanced vine than one yes, that's not uptaking? You will. You see more uniformity. Absolutely. You see more uniformity in size, shape. When it's not struggling as much, you see more uniformity. And what's good about that is that what you're trying to manage in the vineyard as you get close to harvest is you're trying to average the maturity of that fruit because you can't afford, no one in the world can afford to go out and pick a couple berries off that cluster and a couple off that one when they reach it. I mean, clearly the field has to be harmonious. And in a, in a setting where you have nutritional deficiencies, you're going to see a lot more variability in ripeness. You have fruit that's definitely green fruit that may be already getting to overripe and and that's not where you want to be you don't want to be trying to average your harvest you want that fruit on the same page ideally in an ideal world it's on the same page and we're talking about that profile being what i mentioned attracted me to oregon in the first place which is that beautiful fresh fruit profile that's what you're hoping to have but a lot of that is driven in part by your farming you're getting good balance of uptick in the trace minerals. Are you seeing a different character when you're trying to ferment wine? Do the ferments behave differently than they would otherwise? Absolutely. You see way less reduction. It's amazing. In fact, this is one of the things that happened to us with Carter. Back in the day, we started to see, mid-90s, we started to see some reduction in that site, in the fermenters, and it caused us concern, not all of them, but more than we had seen and from certain blocks. And so we had the, uh, we were fortunate that a guy, uh, Eve Herody, who's an agricultural specialist, he came to our area. He did a canvassing of numbers of vineyards in the valley, and one of them was Canary Hill and Carter for us down the Eel Hills. Canary Hill was his favorite vineyard. The health of it, he thought the health was amazing. Um, but Carter, he said, you got a problem. And so he did a really interesting thing where he he had us in the vineyard because I had mentioned to him we were struggling a little bit with some of the fer fermentations and he goes I think I understand your problem and, he, and so he dug down with a shovel in the area 
where the tractor travel was, about three feet down, and he took a big, a big shovel full of the soil there and laid it out on the, on the topsoil. And he said, smell that. And so we all got down our hands and knees and smelled it. It was really funky. It was really funky. And then he went under the vines in the vine row where there was no tractor travel. He dug down three feet, took a shovel of that, put it next to the other, said, smell that. And it was gorgeous. It was like, it was like super rich garden soil, just really beautiful. You know, when, when good soil, when soil is really healthy and aerated, it's be- it smells great. And it did. And he said, this is your issue. Number one, you're lacking oxygen in your profile. And you need to deal with it. The lack of oxygen has affected your microbial activity. It just affects everything all the way down. And ultimately, it'll affect your wine quality. You're harvesting fruit that doesn't have all the nutrition it needs to have for the yeast to perform in a healthy way. And that's why you're getting these issues in fermentation. And so we immediately addressed Carter Vineyard with a program for amending to address all those shortfalls. And we obviously ripped it to create oxygen. And it really responded well to chicken manure, to fish, also to basic forms of carbon like molasses, Coke syrup. Carbon's kind of key, right? It is key. It helps to spark the reaction. It's the fuel of all living things. You can think of carbon as the fuel you put in your car, in your gas tank. It's not the engine that drives things. It's the spark that creates the reaction. And so it's important to have that for the microbiology as well. So over a couple of years, Carter for us came fully back online. It had all the character it had before. That's amazing that how the soil's doing would affect then how much reduction you're getting. Because how much reduction you're getting would affect how many times you're racking. Oh, yeah. So it's like this whole chain of events. Oh, big time. If you're starting off with a reductive wine, you're dealing from behind. And that's, that's not where you want to be. So you're right, absolutely. When you're following practices that promote that microbiological population and vineyard health and oxygenating the environment, the resulting fermentations tend to be super clean. Absolutely. Because if there were a reduction, that would actually tamp down some of those top notes aromatically that we've been talking about and that you seem successfully to be bringing out. Absolutely. It would condense those down. It would. Yeah, big time. You start to see this decrease in the volume of particularly the high notes, but everything begins to be drawn back and less expressive. Do you see a difference in farming the basalt versus farming the sedimentary? Are there things that you really have to keep in the back of your mind when you're approaching these two types? Yes, because the basalts tend to have far more clay in the profile for the soil. And as you would expect, those marine sediments are super sandy. And so sand is such a large grain of soil. I mean, in the world of soil, also a scientist classifies soil as clay being the smallest, and then silt, and then sand being the largest. And so if you're dealing with a sandy soil, there's actually, microscopically, there's a lot of room between the pieces of soil that make that up. And so it, it tends to have a lot more inherently, it has more oxygen, as opposed to a clay-based soil like the volcanics, where you have way more clay, those soils are denser, more compacted, there's less inherent oxygen in them, 
And so it is important to make sure that you're getting oxygen in those profiles more often than you need to in the marine sediments. Sometimes when I've spoken to people on this show, they've made a link between clay soils and then reduction in the wines. And it sounds like we're on the tip of doing that as well, right? Because you're saying there's less oxygen in a clay soil. That absolutely would make perfect. That's a perfect analogy to what we're talking about. And I can see that being a very normal result of a soil that lacks oxygen. You're going to see more reduction in your fermentations without a doubt. Do you tend to rip more on the basalt? Yes. So all of that makes sense to me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So then what do you do when the grapes come into the cellar? What's normal for you? Punch downs, pump overs? Number one, we're going to go through sorting. And it's extensive sorting. You know, we had the first sorting line here in Oregon for a number of years. Like a sorting table. Yeah. Before it went into a the... A conveyor. A conveyor where the fruit is, is on one level so that you can see everything. And we have... 16 people who are hand sorting all that fruit. And it's intense. Anything underripe, anything overripe. You know, one of the bigger issues these days are are stink bugs. And they are volatile. And you can smell them, by the way. So as the fruit's coming down the line, somebody will simply say, I smell one. We stop the line completely, and we go and find that bug. So we are stopping our line an average of 150 times a day. That's how many of them there are to go find that insect and remove it. But that is critical because that's your last chance to make a difference. And, you know, back in the day, everybody would simply take the picking totes and dump them into the stemmer, and it was done. And you got what you got. Maybe Botrytis and in some vintages. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's our last chance to make that difference. And so we will also then, we will layer in dry ice. So we were the first to do dry ice in Oregon years ago to do these cold soaks. So we'll layer in dry ice as we fill the fermenter because when you're using dry ice, it instantly changes that vat to the correct temperature. You're not relying on refrigeration and a jacket to try and cool a mass, a very thick mass that doesn't change temperature easily. We're talking about changing it in a couple of minutes to exactly the temperature we want. And we do that to stall the onset of fermentation. We want to make the environment so cold that yeast cannot begin to work. So, you know, Back in the day, we would, we would do post-fermentation maceration. So after fermentation, you would do a skin soak. At Panther Creek, you used to do. In Panther Creek and, and also in California. And that was common. But when you do it post-fermentation, you're doing it in the presence of alcohol. And alcohol is a seriously strong solvent. Alcohol doesn't just break down the skin tissue. It's breaking down seed tannin and everything else. So back in the day, when, we, when people were trying to get more extraction using that method, often because you got so much astringency and bitterness with it, you'd have to backfine. And so then you're doing either egg white or a gelatin to try and take the harshest elements out of that, out of that extraction. Yeah, you did get more color with that method. You got more, perhaps more fruit and more 
more aromatics, but you also had this severe side of it in terms of texture that wasn't okay. By doing it prior to fermentation, instead of having alcohol present, now it's simply an aqueous, a water-based rendering. And so what I've found when I started this is that the profile, you got all of the color, you got color, you got aromatics, you got flavor, but you didn't get those super harsh, astringent, bitter, acrid qualities that come from sea tannin. And so the wine, instead of needing to be then dealt with further down the road to eliminate harsh substances, you didn't have to do anything. You were good to go. So it didn't require any fining of any kind. So were there specific examples in Burgundy that you kind of drew inspiration for in terms of doing a cold soak? There was a fellow named Guy Akkad, who was a winemaker in Burgundy. Lebanese is my understanding. He is the one, I think, who really brought it to the fore. And his wines had such an amazing, gorgeous, beautiful, rich fruit profile, really rich, but didn't have all that accompanying tannin. They were supple. And everybody in the world making Pinot Noir took notice, including me, enough so that we wanted to look toward these methods, different methods of doing it. And the dry ice was one that, that I actually got from, from Helen Turley. She and I had been conversing about how to do cold soaks in the best possible way, and she had tried the dry ice, and she, she warned me that, you know, as you fill the vat, it's going to look a little ugly because you're freezing that fruit that's next to it. But she goes, don't worry about it. It's all good. She goes, the result is amazing. We tried it in the early to mid-90s, and we really loved the results. Because I could see dry ice not only changing the temperature, but also providing a layer against oxygen. Big time. Yeah, all that CO2, all that carbon dioxide coming off as gas provides quite a, a layer of protection. Do you do some, some pigeage? Do you do some punch downs or do you do straight up pump overs or? We don't do pump overs. I don't care for pump overs. I know that it's kind of a trend now to do it. In that school, they think punching down is too manipulative. I think it's the opposite. I think it's the opposite because when you're sending a volume of, of liquid like you do with a pump over, that's a lot of exposure to air a lot. Whereas punch down definitely is not. Uh, pump over, you could probably, if you had a temperature issue, things were getting too warm, it would be true to say that a pump over would probably solve that quicker. For sure, it would solve that quicker. But if that's not the case, if you're simply trying to get extraction but not overly expose that juice and new wine to oxygen, I think punching down is far gentler. So you're doing open top then? You could say there's like an open four-foot cube made from a food-grade plastic. Bins. Yes. All of these four-foot cubes get aligned in rows of two. And we have a, um, well, we used to do it all by hand for years. We did it all by hand. But now, in fact, it was Tony Reinders, a good friend, who created a system for punchdown using pneumatics. And so you have, you have essentially two pneumatic pieces that attach to a plate. The pneumatic ram well, you know, just with the activation of a simple valve, it goes down into the vet and then retracts. And so you, you're standing on this trolley 
and you're doing two at a time on each side, you're standing on a trolley, and then two people are each punching down on this one trolley as it spans the two fermenters and then goes all the way down that line. Doing it physically, I'll tell you, and I did it for a long, long time. By the time you get to the end of harvest, you're spent. You're beat up. And this way, it's easy. And so we will press right at the end of fermentation. Uh, so it ends up being typically, cold soak is about five days. Active fermentation is between, say, 10 to 12. How long do you leave in wood? Just shy of a year at Panther Creek. I was going 16 months, 17 months. And after doing that for quite a few years, maybe seven, eight years, I went back and tasted through a lot of the vintages, and I felt like we'd lost some of that primary fruit that we had. I mean, we still had it at bottling. There was still primary fruit that's evident at bottling, but with bottle age and over the years, I felt like we had lost more than we should have. And I attribute that to being in barrel too long. So we decided to start bottling just prior to vintage instead of carrying over. And I think that that has played a role in making our wines different. What's a typical lees extension for you? Do you go into wood clean or do you oh, go no. into with a lot of solids? Or We don't go in intentionally with a lot of solids because that could, in fact, cause reduction. You know, the more solids you have, as they settle in the barrel, they form a more compacted layer at the base of that barrel. You know, what's in that layer are yeast cells. And as they die, if they don't have access to oxygen, things get weird. Because there's still, there's still life in a lot of those cells. They haven't fully broken down or gone through autolysis and haven't died. They're actually still working. And if they can't get oxygen, they substitute sulfur in the pathway. And you start getting weird stuff. And so for our, our white wines, like our Chardonnay, we're fermenting in barrel. Those yeast, when that yeast settles, it remains in that barrel because we really love the quality, the textural quality that we get from yeast over time, from the breakdown of yeast and all the proteins that come with that. Those mannoproteins are fantastic for the feel of glycerol and, and that bit of oil on the palate. But the, the danger is that you could have these cells there. And so that is exactly why we do stirring. We do stirring not to break down, physically break down the tissue so much. It's to solve that reductive area, to solve the lack of oxygen in those leaves. And so all you have to do is go in at intervals, stir that layer, that dense layer up, get it suspended, then it comes and settles back down, but now you got the oxygen again. And so that's a huge part of why we stir. And we would do that if we have a Pinot Noir that for whatever reason has more than usual levels of lees, we'll stir the Pinot big time in order to solve that same issue. But generally we go to barrel and we don't go perfectly clean. There's always sediment. We usually end up with about, on average, we're going to have a third of a gallon to a half a gallon of sediment. And you rack a couple times or? Just once. Ideally, we only rack once. If we have a year that is highly acid, we would definitely do a midterm racking because 
highly acid wines have a greater tendency to become reductive than those that are not, big time. And so we would, in order to help the wine develop and not go the reductive route, but more oxidative, for a very highly acid year, we very much would look at doing a midterm racking and then a final racking for bottling, but otherwise only for bottling. When do you drink your own wines in terms of the different vineyard bottlings? Are there some that you tend to approach opening earlier and some that you kind of hold off for a while? Absolutely. Certain vineyards are very uh, expressive early. Canary Hill, super expressive early. Latchkey tends to be super expressive early. The Bonnie Jean vineyard is this way. You know, as opposed to, say, Carter, which has more structure. One of the things we haven't touched on is that East versus west facing makes a big difference. You know, in our area, an east facing site, it gets only the morning sun, which has very little intensity. So once the sun has traveled over that hillside to the west side of that hill, I mean, there really isn't a lot of heat until four to six o'clock here. It's late at this parallel, at the 45th. And so Vineyards that are west-facing get the brunt of that exposure. Carter's one of them. And so Tanninger, Macrone, these are vineyards that are west-facing, and they get the brunt of that heat. And it's noticeable because that exposure to that late heat and that intensity causes those skins to thicken, and you start to get higher tannin levels, create more structure, you get wines that are not immediately as generous. They have to work through those hard edges with some cellar time in the bottle. But you know, eventually they do. They soften up and become very generous later in their life. But yeah, Carter's an example of that. Tanager, Macron, as I mentioned. These are sites that I would hold longer than any of our others, mostly due to that Western exposure. You mentioned the Van Duzer before, and how does that play into some of the differentiation between the sites? The Van Duzer is a corridor that is a connection from the Willamette Valley. It's toward the south end of what we do, of where we source. But it's a corridor from the Willamette Valley. It's a straight shot to the Pacific Ocean. So what happens, a typical day in the growing season is that the morning is fairly cool to start. Once we get to noon, one o'clock, two, the air begins to really warm quickly. Hot air rises rapidly, begins to rise. And so that rising hot air essentially creates a pump. And so air has to come from somewhere to replace the rising hot air. And in our case, what's happening is the Van Duzer Quarter serves as that conduit to this cold ocean air that comes whistling through inland from the ocean, whistling in to the valley to replace that warm rising air. And of course, cold air is heavier, it stays lower. You know, so by the time you get to mid-afternoon, as it enters the valley, it really hits the McMinnville area and the Eola Hills just straight on. And it, it has a pretty big impact. You know, this is work that's been done for years. Mark Cleaver did it way back in the day in, at Davis. But anytime you subject the vine to a wind that's 15 miles an hour or higher, 
the openings on the leaves, the stomata, those openings where the transfer of gases is taking place for photosynthesis, those will shut. The vine, when it's facing an aggressive wind like that, the plant shuts those openings to conserve moisture, so it doesn't dry out. But effectively, it stops ripening as well. All those openings have closed, and so photosynthesis is not happening. It stops ripening. So down in that area, like Carter, as an example, any of our Eola Hills sites or the McMinnville sites, they're always the last to ripen because there's this delay. Unlike our area further north, Yamhill, Carlton, Dundee, Ribbon Ridge, etc., those areas, you do get a breeze. You get a little bit of a, of a nice afternoon breeze, but it's not aggressive. Down south, it's aggressive. And so our vineyards further north continue to ripen. They're continuing to chug along, and, and photosynthesis is happening, you know, ripening is happening until the evening. But down south, boom, they're shut down come mid-afternoon. And so it delays the ripening of those sites. They're always the last sites to bring in. It's a good thing in that it helps to spread out our harvest, so not everything's coming in at the same time, which is great. The only thing you have to be a little concerned about is that those sites that are down there will be later. There are more days involved where you're out there with ripe fruit. The potential for getting rained on is higher. There is that. But we do love those sites, and so we're willing to, we're willing to have some exposure with those sites down there. Most of our eggs are in the north basket, but we do love those sites down south. Because I think that's something that comes up in a kind of a general organ conversation is, well, they're always trying to beat the rain. What we did, what really changed everything, back in 87, as you recall when I said that the, the word on the street back in the 70s and 80s about Oregon was that, well, they're great in the, the good years and not so hot in the challenging years. The industry recognized that this was an issue. And the industry recognized that the world was beginning to make better and better wine all over the world. The whole world has stepped up its game. And so Oregon couldn't continue to compete by having good and bad vintages. That had to get solved. We had to be competitive. You just can't be competitive some years or you're goodbye. And so in 87, we had the advent of acreage contracts. And we did it with Canary Hill and, and Freedom Hill. And, and I know there were others who began that same year in 87. And that changed everything. Because what it allowed us to do was this. By the time you get to June, early June, you know if you're in for a challenging year. If you've had a super cold spring, well, you, and, and you know that bloom is now late June instead of early you know what you're in for. You know that you're going to be hanging out at the end of October, perhaps. And so the only hedge that you really have in this case is to drop crop. If you think of the plant as a car and you have the leaf tissue is the engine, that's your photosynthetic engine. Cars are faster or slower based upon their weight. You have one engine. That engine is static, pretty much, but you have a lot of control over the weight. So in a year, well, you know you're going to be challenged. 
you can go in in June. And as soon as you know what your crop level is, you can drop down to a level that you feel you can ripen in a challenging year. And that's what happened for the first time in 87. You're killing yourself economically in terms of crop level, but in the end, it doesn't matter. In the end, if as an industry, we're not making extremely high quality wine, we're all screwed. You'd rather have half of the crop that is beautiful than a lot of okay wine. The world does not accept okay wine anymore. So when you drop crop, do you drop whole clusters or do you drop part of a cluster? People have done different things that way. I like whole cluster. I really don't like the juicing that takes place when you cut a cluster in half. Juice is just a Petri dish for bacteria. <laughs> you know, I just go, oh. Like, and so I prefer a whole cluster. If we have a year, let's say, where we're, we know we're super challenged, we'll usually drop down to one cluster per shoot. And your two clusters per shoot is a normal crop level, most varieties. So we are essentially dropping half the crop. And we will take the secondary cluster, not the basal. The base cluster will leave. In my experience, when we've done and we've done a lot of work with it, the basal cluster is just a hair riper than the secondary cluster. Just a hair. And so we will remove the secondary clusters in a really challenging year. Sometimes we go even having shoots without clusters if necessary. But we'll usually go down to one cluster. In a year where we're semi-challenged, we'll drop one cluster from every other shoot. So drop 25% of the crop. There's been some kind of up and down vintages, right? 13, there was a surprise rain. 14, 15 were really warm. We're all about dropping crop when it's necessary. But we're also all about keeping crop in a very hot year. Because again, your only control is your crop level. So in a hot year like 15, you don't want the fruit to accelerate to high sugar levels. Again, with a really short growing season where you haven't developed any complex aroman flavor, I mean, we'll leave everything possible in those years to slow the plant down. The only thing slowing the plant down is the work. Give it more work to do, extend our season, and by having more hang time, get those complexities. There'll be some fine-tuning at the very end. What do you associate as kind of key vintages for you? 91 was very um, educational. I had, you know, 1990 was, um, for me, the best vintage I've seen since I've been in Oregon. It was an incredible year. The wines were stupidly delicious. Mother Nature just gifted you this amazing fruit. 91 taught a lot because it was a much, much cooler year, high acid year, rain-filled year. It was late. I think we harvested Freedom Hill in the early days of November. (laughs) And so we had to live through a lot of weather. And the wines were pretty high acid. When they were first released, those wines were pretty quiet. They were really pretty quiet and very tight. Over the years, though, when we went back as an industry in different tasting panels and tasted the 90s, our suspicion was 90 would be amazing, 92 was really, really, really warm, would be very opulent, 94 was a kind of a heralded year, Um, 98 was a 
tiny crop year, tiny, tiny good wines, though. And we suspected those years would be the standout years. But what actually took place when we went back and tasted is that 91 killed it. It absolutely killed it. When it got to eight years old or so, to 10 years old, it just went past everything else. Just absolutely gorgeous. It took time to get there, but it was stunningly beautiful. 91 as a, as a whole from the whole region. It was a surprise to me, big surprise, that it gained so much complexity over time and that it essentially eventually outperformed every other vintage around it that was so much more heralded. So I, I learned a lot. I mean, I learned from that that we can go through some trying circumstances. We can go through a cooler year. We can go through a bit of rain. But if you get rid of anything that has rot, you get rid of anything that, that isn't right, it can end up becoming amazing with time. What have you seen in the 2000s and the aughts? 01, 04, 07 were more challenging. They were cooler, potentially had some rain. Um, 03, 09, 06, rather 03, 06, 09 were all very warm years. The wines were very much developed very quickly as a rule. They will not age as long as other vintages. They won't. The years that were super balanced, 02, 05, 08, gorgeous. I've had a number of 02s recently. They're really, really showing well. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Ken Wright of Ken Wright Cellars in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by the Willamette Valley Wineries Association. That's the same association that organizes the annual Willamette, the Pinot Noir Auction, Oregon Pinot Camp, and Pinot in the City. For more information, please visit WillametteWines.com. That's Willamette with two L's, two E's, and two T's, Wines.com. You actually sourced 10 barrels of Cabernet and Malot from Eleanor, who was Martin Ray's widow. The small winery technical society, which Dick Graff started, that I was attending the meetings of, they were held up at Mount Eden, which is the neighbor to Martin Ray. So I had met Eleanor. Raymond had passed, and Eleanor had the vines that 
Martin had received from Louis Latour, of all people, but they were Bordeaux vines. I don't get how that happened, but it happened. So it was Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot in front of her home, and she was looking for a home for it, uh, someone to take that fruit. Her children were still too young, and they weren't interested. I love Mount Eden. I love that area for the Bordeaux varieties. So I agreed to take that fruit from Eleanor. It amounted to a total of 10 barrels. And then when uh, making my move up to Oregon in 86, I had those 10 barrels in tow and came up to the Willamette Valley and set up shop in a funky little warehouse building that was uh, $250 a month. It was really, really, really basic. But had those 10 barrels and I had this old truck. I rolled down the hill in my truck that backed it up to this building. I rolled the barrels into this new winery and my First sojourn into the Lama Valley was with a Bordeaux blend. But it almost didn't happen because this is back in the day when the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms actually came and inspected you before you were given a license. And so I had an appointment, and this inspector came, and he comes into my crummy little building, and he and we're meeting in my crummy little office, and he looks at me and he goes, well, you know, I'm here just to make sure that you have everything you're supposed to have. And I see a stemmer, I see some tanks, I see a press. He goes, it looks like you're real, like you're really going to make wine, you're not the mob. And I said, and I've got 10 barrels back there of some amazing wine from Mount Eden. Anyway, he goes, what? And I go, yeah, it's just, like, it's just beautiful. It's a, just a terrific wine. It's the first thing that I'll have. And he goes, you have wine in this house? I go, yeah. He goes, you can't have wine. And I go, what do you mean I can't have wine? He goes, you're not bonded yet. You can't bring wine into an unbonded facility. And I said, I can't. And he goes, no. <laughs> he goes, did you tell me you brought it up from California? I go, yeah. So you crossed state lines with it. I go, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. And he goes, Ken, you've broken some serious laws here. You transported across state lines. You made it at an unlicensed facility. You got stored here. There's no way you're ever going to sell this wine. And I looked at him and I said, you you got to be kidding. So this is all I've got. If I can't sell this wine, I'm, I'm out of business before I start. And he looked at me. He goes, you know, just because I pity you because you're stupid, I am going to do everything I can to try and find a way. I'm going to make an argument to my superiors to see if there's any way we can find a way for you to keep this wine and sell it. Because I know you didn't do it out of intent. But don't count on it. And Two months later, he got back to me, and he had found a way. I had to call it an American wine, but he allowed me to sell it, and he didn't have to. 